Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Thank you to Integral Life for providing this live portal. Check out Integral Life if you haven't become a member. It's the central hub for the Integral Movement. You can find all my stuff at dailyevolver.com and most of it on my Daily Evolver YouTube, which I would encourage you to subscribe to. And you can also check out some of my current work uh, doing the new podcast this week in the New York Times, a post-progressive look at our progressive paper of record, which is published over at the postprogressivepost.com. So that's me. All right. Today, I wanted to visit a controversy that is going on in the integral slash spiral dynamics developmental worlds regarding the very validity of stage development theory, indeed the very morality of it. And this controversy got set off by a tweet from Nora Bateson, an author and thinker and president of the International Bateson Society, and I'll link to her in the, in the write-up. And it blew up on social media. And here's the tweet. It's short and sweet. She says, stage theory is BS, always was, and it is colonial as hell. Sorry, but that has got to go. <laughs> All right. So that went out there and lots of responses, lots of uh, excitement. And my favorite response to her was a short essay defending stage theory posted by Hansi Freinach, who is an author. His latest book is Nordic Ideology, and he's sort of identified with the metamodern movement. And the result uh, of the two of them is many threads and conversations and podcasts and videos that followed, including this very one you're listening to right now. So let me say, first of all, that I think this is a very fruitful controversy and actually right on schedule evolutionarily, if I may say so. As those of you who have listened to my stuff, you know, you know I, I've often wondered and pondered on the podcast, how will developmental theory ever get real mainstream traction in our media and intellectual climate? I mean, the idea of development itself, stages of growth in people and cultures, don't make it out of the box in an intellectual climate that is busy with cultural criticism and breaking down power structures and interrogating all systems of thought for hidden forms of oppression, which is worthy work, actually. And but it's tough, you know, so it's something that you may have had this experience yourself with your friends. I certainly have, you know, and I trot out my spiral dynamics and my stages and colors and boxes and maps. And people are like, what's up with that? Why do you have to keep putting everybody in boxes? So anyway, this latest uh, kerfuffle in, in the great stage debate has roots in a long conflict. And again, I'd say it's quite fruitful. The, the comments, especially taken as a whole, reveal the evolution of evolutionary thought itself. 
And it seems like there are a lot of people out there, probably many of you listening to this right now, who appreciate the enormous explanatory power of developmental theory and its humaneness and its uh, need for it in our world. And also, I think more and more are able to appreciate, I know I am, uh, I'm able to appreciate the limits of the theory and the places it cannot go. So let me do my best to sum up the core points of these two positions, position one being that stage theory is colonial BS, and position two being that stage theory is good, by starting with the second, uh, Hansi Freinach, who, and again, I'll link to this in the write-up. And this is his, a short essay that he responds to her tweet. And he starts, like she did, uh, a bit cheeky. And I'll just read it. I'm not the whole thing, but pieces of it here. Stage theory is BS, always was, and it is as colonial as hell. Thus writes Nora Bateson. And as such, she captures the spirit of the moment. We, the people, are fed up with developmental stage fetishism and its pathologies. Applause and moments of clarity, a fresh spark of resistance, a wise warning just in time. No more entitled white men on their way to conspiracy beatings about how to raise the rest of humanity to their self-proclaimed heights. No more cults forming and creating dominator hierarchies based on stage theory excuses. Out, rouse, get out. Yes, I too, and this is, continues to be Hansi, I too have grown wary of stage mania. I often find myself in arguments about it. The path forward is to support generative conditions for happiness and healing. The Listening Society, which is the name of this first book, not forcing one's idea of development and stages down other people's throats. And of course, I agree with him. And I have to say, I've never found, you know, in all my dealings with people at the Integral Institute and all these seminars we did and all the hundreds, thousands of people I met, I never, I mean, maybe st stage mania. I, I think there was a lot of resistance to that. I think there was a lot of, you know, healthy green um, suspicion of the hierarchies uh, that, you know, people were constantly tiptoeing around, it seemed to me, but whatever, we're, we're, we're certainly against stage mania. And he says so. And then he writes, and yet the problem is that stage development is real, he puts in quotes, in the sense that these theories describe and explicate the data in manners that none of their denunciators can match, not even close. Sure, there are holes to poke, and critical perspectives to reincorporate. As I'm keen to pointing out, stage theories aren't everything. There are other as vital aspects, including context, culture, and relationality, but that doesn't make them into nothing. So how do we know stage theory is roughly true? Here are the questions that nobody, strangely enough, seems to have brought up on Nora Bateson's thread. Be, perhaps because it's a too risky minority position, question mark? How do you explain the great explanatory and predictive powers of stage theory? Two, 
How come the different researchers from different fields come up with roughly the same stages, with roughly the same characteristics, with roughly the same distribution of people at each stage? Do you have better ways of explaining all that data? On this, there is silence. And where there is empirical and theoretical silence, moral condemnation tends to become louder. So I think that's great. Thank you, Hansi. He goes on to defend developmental theory and, you know, <laughs> get a little bit lost. I, I must say, I'm not a developmental psychologist. I'm not an integral philosopher. I'm uh, an, elegant, an integral dilettante, for sure. I, I've known quite a bit of, I've, I've known quite a few of the psychologists and have, have had many on my podcast. But, you know, I am happy to have somebody advocate for it. But I did not think my way into integral consciousness. I came by way of religious conversion. <laughs> I really did. I mean, in a way, I hate to say it, but it's true. When I saw the title of Ken Wilber's Up From Eden book in my you know, early 30s, maybe, my world shifted. Uh, I saw myself as in the world as alive, a growing system, going, growing somewhere. And that the world and I was being lived by a kind of divine emergence and intentionality or something. And so, you know, I've never overthought that. That is something I feel in my bones. And I think of, you know, one of the results of that is that practically integral thinking has been a very humanizing force for me. It's made me a better person. It's given me faith and comfort. It helps me feel at home in a world where I belong. And so does everyone else. Each of us in our own moment in time, each of us doing our growth thing, each of us in a process of co-creation. So anyway, I was thrilled that Hansi defended psychology, but he also got into this, you know, what are the good results here? And, um, and I'll read a couple things that he said that I thought were really bullseyes. He says, he says, stage theory supports equality. By seeing that some people have had more opportunities to develop, one can develop programs to support those who are psychosocially underprivileged. If you're, as many of the resistors would have it, shamed and ostracized for your research into measuring this, the weak, not the strong, suffer for it. Brilliant. He says, stage theory binds cultures together. Without stage perspectives, people mistake cultural spheres for having immutable qualities that cannot be reconciled. For instance, the Arab world, the West, etc. With a developmental perspective, you can see that stages cut across cultures and offer venues of mutually beneficial exchange. He says, stage theories allow us to be more multi-perspectival. They allow for different truth claims to hold at different stages, thank you, without resorting to analytical violence, thank you, and also real violence sometimes. You can show how things fit together and how one thing leads to another. He goes on to make the case that it's less Western-centric. 
he says, I love this. What is Western is the profound relativism that we're left with in the vacuum of no stage theory and the directionlessness that it, you know, provides society or doesn't. He says, it's better for kids and animals. I love that. Okay, so the last paragraph. So take arms against developmental fetishists and elitism. Okay, I guess. By all means, all right. But do not fall for the fad of throwing the babies out with the bathwater. Not only are you making an analytical mistake, you're letting down the babies. So I think that's a very good defense of integral theory. And I would um, link to it in the write-up. Okay, so now let's go to Nora Bateson. I'll take her tweet at face value. I mean, tweets are superficial in that way, but you know, she put it out there and, uh, and then I'll look at you know, a little more nuanced as well here. Um, okay, so let's see. I will uh, apply integral theory here. <laughs> My faith in it having not been shaken, but broadened, I would say. I, I really have, I've learned from this debate. I appreciate that many have and that everybody's operating of good faith and evolution is being served by the ever unfoldment uh, into greater levels of goodness, truth, and beauty. You know, oh wait, I think I just got into the BS part. <laughs> Too much developmental theory in there. Okay, so deconstructing developmental theory, which is what she's doing here, is itself emblematic of a structure of development what we call post-modernity or the green mean. And if you add in the colonial part, you get a double green whammy. You get the deconstruction of psychological development within individual humans and in the collective with cultural development. So she's, you know, did a good one-two punch there. Now to identify that as green thinking is not an insult. I always have to emphasize that. Postmodern consciousness, green consciousness, is an enormous achievement in human history. And its essential truths uh, are essential for humanity to thrive and move into the next stage. So I'm a big fan of postmodernity. The only problem with postmodernity is that, like all first tier stages, it thinks it's the only right one. And that is a problem with every stage until you get to integral, which says they're all right and they all are essential. And that even that realization itself is not the end of human evolution, that we're going to, it's a, it's a, it's a stage on the path itself. So anyway, let's, let's look at post-modernity because this is, like I said, an essential part of the project here. And post-modernity, itself has a great project, which is to right the wrongs of history, which led to the cataclysms of the first half of the 20th century. And that's when post-modernity really came online. There were people thousands of years ago with postmodern insights, and certainly in many into the 18th century, 19th century. But in, after the first half of the 20th century, people, history itself was suspect. People were fed up with history. Looking back at the end of World War II, all people saw was just ruination after ruination. They saw that all the grand narratives of, he of history, that my tribe is better than your tribe, my clan, 
my God, my people, my race, even rationality itself, which was the great uh, gift of modernity, that the science, you know, was supposed to free us from the cruelties of history, but instead took the age-old curses of history, war and genocide, and industrialized them, you know. So, you know, what else are you supposed to think at the end of World War II? Uh, so you boil history down and you, what you have, the essence of it all is just who could oppress who, who could get what, selfishness, power, that's it. The rest of it is all BS, all right? So that's the thinking of postmodernity. Aesthetically, it's deconstructive, it's transgressive, it wants to make fun of uh, and you know, really, really um, dissolve the previous stage, particularly modernity. Politically, it is world-centric. It people green feel themselves to be uh, citizens of the world more than national citizens. Uh, they're keen on the environmental movement and thinking, multiculturalism. Dispositionally, they are dedicated to bringing the poor, outcast, marginalized, anybody who's been exploited back into the fold. So feminism, gender fluidity, animal rights, all of that is part of this postmodern sensibility. And spiritually, it wants contact. It wants immediately to feel feelings more deeply, to bring heart subjective touch, the personal and interpersonal, these realities want to be brought in rather than this arid world of modernity and materialism where we think and abstract everything to death. So, you know, again, an enormous, an enormous achievement of human history, this realization. And Nora Bateson, from what I could see, and I've, I've watched some of her videos, looked at her website and so forth. And I love her basic message of warm data. Uh, this idea of bringing immediacy, dropping the mental constructs, bringing heart, real contact, the potential of relation, re relationality into one's field. You know, I like that. I want that. I can feel even in this moment, a warmth warm data, a warmth arising in my breast. And I also like to have to say that I like my data sometimes cold and hard as well. I think we need both of those things. And, um, and that's sort of the project of integral, if you will. Integral being the stage of development that arises out of post-modernity as Postmodernity arose out of modernity, and modernity arose out of traditionalism, which arose out of the warrior cultures, tribal cultures, indigenous cultures, which arose out of uh, animal consciousness and plant consciousness <laughs> when we mated with the aliens. I mean, I don't know how it all got started, but you know, this is the trajectory of history that is obvious from the consensus of, you know thousands of historians who have studied this. And no, we're not gonna throw that out. The integral project is to integrate that with all other worldviews. So all the ones I just talked about 
And I talk about this project endlessly on my podcast. And, and, and we are, uh, the, the trick is to separate what is good and what is bad about each of these staged worldviews. And that's actually easier than it sounds because all we really have to do is drop the part of the worldview that says it's the only right one and the others are BS and must be stopped. The ultimate goal is to create a new human who has integrated the wisdom of the ages, of humanity, of all cultures. It, it feels that, feels, uh, you know, not just world-centric, but cosmocentric in the sense that one is identified with the process of being human and, and life and evolution. And so we want to create this new human who has the sensitivity of green, the rationality of modernity, so sensitivity of post-modernity, rationality of modernity, the great mythic truths of traditionalism, the passions and power of the warrior, the enchanted world and deep community of tribal consciousness and the sensual instinctual embeddedness of early humans and indeed this sort of gray area where we woke into self-consciousness from animal consciousness and plant consciousness and the consciousness of all beings. So yeah, we want that. And we, and, and green is essential to moving into that. It's, it's like Claire Graves said, green, having this sensitivity to correct the you know horrors of uh, the downsides of modernity, uh, you know, the disenchantment of the world, the materialism, the uh, exploitation and despoilation, despoiling of the natural world, that, that having that insight makes us worthy to become integral. So this is Nora Bateson's uh, explanation. And, you know, there's lots of stuff to look at. And so I, I just uh, tried to work with something that she presented as this is a tour three minute video on her site where she's sort of explaining herself. So this is sort of key to how she sees herself and what she's doing. If our senses are delivering information that's landing in an existing epistemological and cultural frame, it only serves to affirm and confirm what we already perceived, right? So there's a danger there that sense being made is based upon the sense that's already been made. And so it continues to be the sense based upon the sense. How then do we start to shift things at that very deep level and make a space for new senses to be made so that new ideas, new possibilities, new impulses, new metas can come out of that? And for me, that has to do with, well, by no means does it have to do with telling people what to think, although she, that's just what she's doing there, but never mind the performative contradiction, which Hansi actually brings up too. Um, it's um, what she's talking about. It's, it's funny because in a way, what she's talking about makes the point that she's talking about which is that there has been a fine tradition of doing what she's doing here, which is to question the idea of 
our perception of reality at all. And the reification of thought and how thought creates the boxes that we live in and reify them and, and recirculate them. And we want to find our way out of that. And that is a very, very good in, insight. That's for, from a Buddhist perspective, perspective, that's conditioned mind, which is happily, you know, willing to continue to recycle the same crapola. Uh, but there's, a, there's an opportunity for creativity in every moment. They actually map it to 12, talk about maps, Buddhism, Jesus, 12 nadanas, they call them, stages where things arise and we see them and they become conceptions. And there's a place on that process, circular process of these 12 nadanas, this endless wheel, where we can jump off and find something new and creative. And that's really important. And is that a new insight or an old insight? It's an old insight. And this is in some ways, you know, again, more evidence for the truth of stages not being sequential and reified and that there have people have been people throughout history who have had deep understandings that are, you know, would blow our minds and do blow our minds. And there's something built into each of us and into societies that recognize these people as saints and sages and, and good people and wise people. And, and, and culture as a whole, you know, kind of lives their way into the truth of these great spiritual realizations. And they do it, we do it at the stage of development that we're at. So, uh, you know, every religion that every religion that is based on this sort of esoteric truth of questioning reality and seeing the reality beyond words and thought, um, that that is, um, that that has to be taken into account. And um, so that's what this is doing. It's good green. As societies continue to, you know, metabolize that, and, and I always think of uh, the great line from Anthony DeMello, the, the Jesuit priest philosopher, who talked about that the traditions have this, you know, great realization of seeing everything and luminosity. And then we reify it and it turns into the finger pointing at the moon. It's not the moon, it's the finger pointing. And then we make a statue of the finger. We put it on the shelf and take it down occasionally and use it to gouge each other's eyes out. And I always thought that was kind of uh, funny and has a lot of wisdom to it. So anyway, there's, you know, again, Buddhism sort of specializes in this realization, and it's, it's presented in the doctrine of the two truths, that there is uh, an absolute reality and a relative reality. And relative reality is the reality that we experience and see with our senses. And absolute reality is the empty the dimension of reality that is beyond words and thoughts. So it's empty of any conception. We literally can't go there with our minds. But yet we can sort of experience its presence in the, you know, you know, you work at this. <laughs> it's, it's described sometimes as being completely empty, uh, sometimes being completely full, 
It is the sort of potentiality out of which the Big Bang arose. And it is lighting up and informing and interpenetrated with every moment. And it has qualities of love and creativity. And, you know, if in order to see it, you have to set your conditioned mind aside. So any maps, anything trying to explain it, understand it has to be set aside. Um, and that's what she says. She says, if our senses are delivering information that's landing in an existing epistemological and cultural frame, it only serves to affirm and confirm what we've already perceived. So it's circular until we break that circle. And when we do, and this is part of what I loved about Buddhism, especially when I was studying the um, Vajrayana in uh, the um, MDiv program at Naropa, was that there's a quality that arises in the world of form when the world of emptiness is perceived. And that is the, the quality of luminosity, as if things were stage lit a re-enchanted world that one is deeply, you know, like honey, appreciative of, and that one joins in the world of form to co-create what is emerging in the world of form. So form is an evolving emergent th thing and emptiness is this sparkling potentiality that it's all arising in. And, you know, so practice is about realizing the interpenetration of those two things. And again, people have been seeing this for a long time. And, um, and, and we can see it even in the integral world. There, there's a movement in the integral world that overstates the downsides of modernity and the upsides of pre-modernity. So the, you know, the, the, um, uh, deconstruct the materialism, the, the, the disenchantment of the world from modernity. <clears throat> and, um, and then the upside, the deep community and the magic and the enchantment of pre-modernity is emphasized. And, and, you know, that's probably a necessary corrective for the story that most of us were taught, I was, which was emphasized the upsides of modernity and the downsides of pre-modernity. So again, welcome to uh, the, the way forward, really. You know, I feel like there's a new secular path forward that um, will help us to realize what is mappable and what isn't, you know. And the traditions have always struggled with this. They, they, the traditions tend to go to spiritual materialism. They fall in love with their maps and then they wake up and scold themselves for falling too in love with their maps and they move into the emptiness side of the street. And, you know, we're kind of working that. And I think this is, you know, I, I didn't think any, everybody's gonna get Buddhist or, you know, Christians have their version of this and the Vedanta, they all do. Um, but maybe this is just the secular way forward. And I'm, if so, I'm happy to see that. Okay. Oh, I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to play something that I just enjoy. This is just a little trifle, but it's an example of what happens when we go overboard with the absolute reality side of the street. 
where we get what is called in, you know, in practice, Zen sickness, you know, where everything becomes, I can't wrap my head around it. And there's this wonderful movie that Chuck and I saw the other night in the gay section. And you never know with the gay section, there's a lot of bad movies, but there's some really good ones. And this one's called Benjamin. And I think it's on Netflix, but check it out, Benjamin. And it's about this gay relationship and this guy who I have to say suffers with a bit of Zen sickness. And here he is with his boyfriend. And by the way, what I love about it is their gayness is very incidental to the story. It's basically a good rom-com. But here it is where he's, um, he and his boyfriend are talking about, do, do they love each other? I think I love you took a while because if we believe that the self is an illusion... What does that mean? I, I don't know, that we're, you know, it's physics. Physics? Okay, like, what do those words mean? When you put words to it, I mean, like, I, what is that supposed to be? I mean, I? Yeah, 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 listen, 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 I don't know what the fuck you're on about. So. What I feel is that we are love. That's the thing, there's, there's no separation. I'm you, you're me, I'm the table. Do you love the table? Do you love me more than the table of the same? It's all... I don't know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, but you just go fuck the table. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we can go too far on both sides of the street here. And um, so, anyway, I think that's what this um, great stage debate sort of captures. And again, I think it is a uh, move forward. We fight and friend our way forward. And again, I'll put some links in the write-up and you can go see how that is arising in real time. So thank you for listening. Um, it's great to really work with so many and read so many and just uh, see the integral world itself evolve with so many good, smart, good-hearted people working it out. And I'm happy to add my two cents. So thanks again for listening to The Daily Evolver. We'll see you again next time. It's Jeff Salzman signing out. <laughs>